Today on episode number 470 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Building Community in the College Classroom with Robert Eaton and Bonnie Moon, with a cameo appearance by Steve Hunsaker later in the episode. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Rob and Bonnie, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for having us back. We're so excited. We're we're just grateful to be invited back anywhere, Bonnie. So thank you. <laughs> well, you're such good guests already. Uh, you've brought the. Uh, I was trying to think of a housekeep housewarming sort of thing, but I can't do it. I can't come up with my virtual analogies right now. You've been on the show before, and rather than going through your bios, for anyone who's interested in reading them in their fullest, they will be on the show notes page. But wanted to hear a little bit about you, but also a little bit about your experiences with building learning communities. So, Bonnie, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about a, an experience that comes to mind for you in building community or not in a, in a learning context. Thank you. Yeah, so... I teach mathematics at BYU-Idaho, and I also am the committee chair for the women in STEM in our college, which I really enjoy. And I just wanted to share maybe a couple of, of things that I that come to mind when I think of building community. One is that when I was first hired on full-time here, I was brought in on a team, and this team's job was to create a new course, a statistics course that we were going to pilot at the face-to-face level and then send it online. And I think just remembering back to those days, I felt a little apprehensive (laughs) to just be pushed onto a team. But looking back, I am so grateful I was because coming in as a new person and having my people, like there were four or five of us that just had a small collaborative group. And to see that we actually did have different talents and different expertise that we brought to the group and each one of us was needed. And to be able to start my my tenure here at BYU-Idaho as part of this team brought me into the university in a way that I don't think would have happened if I hadn't had a purpose and a reason to come and work. I mean, I was teaching students, which was wonderful too. That did bring purpose. But even more than that, just feeling part of a team and knowing that my contributions were important and that if I didn't show up, they would miss me. Your story brings up such a wonderful example that all of us don't always know in advance what's going to be the most nourishing for us and what might facilitate the deepest learning. I'm thinking about the times when I've entered into learning spaces and might be the one to sit all the way in the back of the room as far as far away as humanly possible. And, and sometimes the serendipitous ways that people, we get brought together. But Bonnie, your story just reminds us we don't always do that with excitement from the very beginning. You don't know what's going to happen on the other end. So I'm excited about today's conversation where we can learn more about how to build community in the college classroom. And especially with that in mind, where where we may not 
initially be so excited about the group project or the the opportunities to work with colleagues and that type of a thing. Well, Rob, we'd love to hear a little bit about you and also what story or stories may come to mind for you as we think about building learning communities. So I think one important biographical detail we didn't get to last time is that I do play the accordion quite badly. (laughs) I think it's important for people to know that. So as you were asking about a great experience we'd had with the collaborative learning community, an interesting experience came to mind. Years ago, we overhauled general education here, and I had been a proponent of creating an interdisciplinary class that focused on another country or another region that would help students better learn to understand people who are different than them by understanding their backstories. And I should have anticipated they would then come to me and say, great, now create one. So they assigned to me people I'd literally never met before. So... (laughs) It's almost like the beginning to a a joke, an economist, a Russian professor, a geographer, and a religion professor walk into a bar and come out (laughs) with a new GE course. And I still remember we had this offsite retreat and going to the grocery store and shopping and just learning about how the economist approached shopping differently than the rest of us. It was a delightful, interactive um, experience where we drew from our different perspectives, our different areas of expertise. And then as we got the course off the ground, we added people, including our co-author, Steve Huntsaker. And we had weekly meetings and we had this infrastructure I didn't have for any of my other courses where we could share ideas and we were vulnerable. We started with what what failed? How'd you crash and burn last week? What went well? What are you going to do next week? This is what we're teaching. And it was one of the highlights, has been one of the highlights of my teaching career. And I'm grateful for how it introduced me to Steve Huntsaker. He was For years, my exposure to the scholarship of learning and teaching was asking Steve what he'd read recently. And Mm. it really wasn't until working on the project for this book that I began to pay the price seriously myself doing my own reading. But Steve really has taught me so much through the years about the scholarship of learning and teaching. Would you talk a bit more about Steve's contribution to the book, specifically with not just an analogy, but an actual experience he's had with a warm blanket around his shoulders and how important that can be, that idea can be to bring that those types of comforts into a learning community. I'll speak to that. So I'm, I miss Steve. I would love to have him here with us, but I'll speak a little bit to his introduction. So if you read the book at the very beginning, he does share with us, I'll just quote, he says, I have Parkinson's and irreversible progressive disease. And since my diagnosis in 2010, I have come to understand the degenerative part of irreversible. And so just so you know a little bit about him, he would come, but uh, it's sometimes hard for him to get the words across that he would like to share because of this Parkinson. So one thing that I would like to add uh, is to thank him right away for his contributions, especially on the research, like Rob was saying, all of his scholarly contributions and experiences, but the warm blanket. So the warm blanket analogy, if you think of being in a hospital (laughs) and the coldness of that atmosphere. Steve brought in this warm blanket idea that nothing feels better than when you're in that kind of stark environment, just kind of feeling vulnerable than someone bringing a warm blanket and putting it around your shoulders. And so in the chapter that we've written on the building community, we refer to some of the practical applications as these warm blankets. So thank you, Steve, for that analogy. And That's where we can head if you'd like to head that direction. There's a few warm blankets we can talk about, but that's where that comes from. Yeah. Can I just throw out one other thought about warm blankets? I'm 
about to make a professional transition and go teach at our sister institution, BYU. I'm 59. I've, I should be reasonably comfortable with my self-esteem in life. I, I feel like a seventh grader going to a new junior high. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for a few gracious future colleagues there who've reached out in very kind ways with small gestures that have been little warm blankets for me. It can be hard for us to remember as professors who've been in place for a while what our students feel like when they often leave behind family and friends, come come into a new class where maybe they don't know anyone at all to wonder, how am I going to be received here? Warm blankets are small things we can do to make people feel welcome, make them feel like they belong. Well, I mentioned in the intro to this episode that we'd have a cameo from Steve. Here's a segment with Rob interviewing Steve about his journey with Parkinson's and the warm blankets he'd choose to build community in the classroom. Steve, in our book, you shared an experience about disclosing something about your Parkinson's to your class. Would you mind sharing that story and just your thoughts about how appropriate vulnerability with our students can build that bond, that vertical connection between our students and them, or or shrink the psychological gap between professors and students? That's interesting. Yeah, that was a great experience for me. It was during the COVID months or semesters when we were not meeting in person. And I'd had a frustrating day with the mouse. That's one thing I've discovered that Parkinson's is really mm. hard on my ability to use the fine, fine muscles of the hand to control the mouse. I didn't even think of that. And in that situation where you're trying to keep track of a couple monitors and the sound and all those things going on there with the uh, distance teaching, I'd uh, been unable to get click on the right button. For some reason, it got frustrated and kind of in a cross mood, blamed the uh, problem on the Parkinson's. This comes to the students, they'd never heard anything about the Parkinson's. So I was uh, kind of embarrassed that I had brought that up and thrown that disease under the bus, but blaming everything on the disease. Maybe fairly in that particular case, right? How many years have you had Parkinson's? How long has it been since your diagnosis? Uh, That time would have been about 10 years. And now about 12? Yeah, 12 or 13. 12 or 13 now. Wow. At any rate, I uh, kind of uh, grumpily said that it was all, the, all to be blamed on the Parkinson's. And a student, and I still remember the hearing this in the kind of the corner of my ear, since we were listening to people on microphones all around the country, heard this little voice say, it's all right, you can tell us. That was just a grace, moment of grace for that student to extend that uh, permission to me to be weak and to be vulnerable. It was a beautiful moment. I uh, d- didn't know at the time who it was, but I've since learned it was a very sweet young lady who's uh, doing great things. But she really lightened my load that day by saying that it was okay to be weak and not to be perfect. Wow. Speaking of that, and uh, I'm just curious, how has Parkinson's changed the way you approach teaching, but especially when it comes to students who deal with their own challenges, whether it's mental health challenges or uh, disabilities of some kind? Yeah. Um, I've found that uh, being open about the Parkinson's has been a very important thing for me. I'll just say that I suspect that most of us have people in our group of contacts and acquaintances who have little respect for boundaries. Mm. These are people, there are people out there who seem to speak in order to make other people squirm, people who like to make us uncomfortable. I'll just be clear about this, say that sharing overly personal information isn't vulnerability. That's not what I'm talking about when I say vulnerability. That's just TMI, too much information. <laughs> in the context of a college class, vulnerability, I would define that as something like intentional exposure to potential ridicule in order to meet an educational need. Mm. 
So in that spirit, and from the first day of class, I shared with my class that I do have Parkinson's and that it brings up some issues that they need to know about because it could potentially affect their learning. Um, I used to like to make a little joke, say, if I sneeze, you know, cover your face and make sure you're, you're covered so you don't catch Parkinson's. <laughs> That's a lot less funny than it used to be given COVID, but it, was, <laughs> it used to be quite, quite hilarious. But uh, don't laugh about that too much anymore. And I'm curious, how, how do you think that act of intentional vulnerability establishes community in the classroom? How do you, what kind of reaction do you sense from students? I hope it has a good effect. I think it does. I see people kind of relax a little bit, and they uh, they may have been seeing the tremor in the hand. They may have seen the kind of slow gait as I came into the room. They may have wondered, what's wrong with this guy? I think by addressing it uh, candidly and openly on the first day, I think it reduces some of the tension in the air, and it, uh, it's, it just uh, builds some community and uh, some connection. I certainly take no pleasure in focusing the attention on my inadequacies. I don't like to do it. Uh, I don't like to draw attention to my thoughts and sometimes incoherent voice. I don't like to uh, make it clear and obvious to everyone that I can't write legibly <laughs> on the whiteboard or anywhere else. The tremor, the overall slowness, and the uh, occasional need to rely on a cane. I don't like drawing attention to those things, but because I'm aware that those symptoms could potentially negatively impact the student's ability to learn if they're distracted by my voice or by the uh, tremor or something like that. So I got to, I think it's really important to get it out there and keep it. And on the on the table and open, even though I'd much prefer to be silent about it. I'd rather not say anything. I'd rather not draw attention to it. By the way, thank you for being willing to share these personal details with this podcast. It's wonderful. Yeah. One other question. Yeah. Uh, if you could choose one warm blanket of your own, as we talk about sort of warm blankets, techniques we can use in, in fostering a sense of community in our classrooms, what would it be? You remember the Felton and Lambert book? Relationship Rich Education. Love it. Great book. I was paging through that book the other day and I came across a, a simple set of four short sentences that really struck me. Those were see them, listen to them, encourage them, and challenge them. Speaking of students, see them, listen to them, encourage them, and challenge them. Uh, rather than just give you one, wait, could I give you four? Based on those Absolutely. four thoughts. So see them. I think we need to learn to see our students in all their messy, imperfect, and underdeveloped but potential-filled humanity. We need to see them. In our context, we might say see them as children of God. Mm. Because we we're, we're, we're here at a religiously sponsored college. Right. Listen to them. I think we need to learn to listen to and respond to our students' often wildly imaginative career plans. Without sarcasm. <laughs> I need to work on this. <laughs> to their confident but naive understanding of difficult concepts without condescension. And to their anxiety-laced self-assessments without judgment. Mm. So listen to them. Encourage them. We need to prepare to encourage disheartened students. Even though we may know that they are capable of more, our students may be convinced that they are already performing at the absolute limit of their capabilities. I think we need to be there and encourage them in those moments when they think they can't do anymore. Finally, we need to challenge them. I think we all need to aspire to become the coach who can coax from a talented but anxious athlete the performance of a lifetime. Hmm. I think that coaching metaphor would be one we could all do well to adopt in our, in our uh, how we view things with our students. So that's what I would say for four small but warm blankets. Maybe not blankets, maybe just four warm handkerchiefs, but uh, there's, there's <laughs> four thoughts. 
Beautiful. Thank you, Steve. Thanks so much, Steve, for sharing about vulnerability in teaching. And now, Rob, could you share a little bit about some of the theoretical frameworks around building community between faculty and students? So, you know, this is actually, we've got a couple different chapters. One focuses on what you might think of as the vertical relationship between faculty and students, and then the other is the horizontal relationship between students. And the it's interesting, as we ask students a bunch of questions in a survey, we were surprised that what came out at the top was how they felt faculty felt about them. And that was consistent with a bunch of research, so we shouldn't have been surprised. But let me just pull up something here. For example, a 2018 survey of college graduates found that graduates who had seven to 10 significant relationships with their professors or staff were more than three times as likely to report their college experience is very rewarding as compared to graduates with no such relationships. And then I love the Great Jobs, Great Lives 2014 study done by Gallup and Purdue. And they found that feeling supported and having deep learning experiences means everything when it comes to long-term outcomes for college graduates. What I loved about that study was it wasn't just in the moment, how happy are you? How much do you like college? How much would you like to take this professor again? It was years after the fact asking some questions about their college experience and how are you doing now? And they found that the students who'd had more connections with their faculty were nearly three times more as likely to be thriving by their definition than those who didn't feel supported. In fact, one of the key questions was, you know, did your faculty care about you? And what was discouraging was how few students, what a small percentage, only 27% strongly agreed that their professors cared about them. I've been meaning to add that question to the institutional survey for my classes, but I haven't yet. To what extent do you feel your professor cares about you? I'd like to move the needle on that. Moving the needle on that, it turns out, if I could suggest one intervention, regardless of what positive teaching outcome you're, or learning outcome you're looking for, it probably would be that one, how, how students feel about you. I was doing a focus group for a subsequent book and a chapter on democratizing participation. I'd written the chapter, the draft of it, and I was doing a focus group looking for some comments that related to the tactics I'd highlighted in the chapter. So I was asking, um, what kinds of things do professors do in classes where you're more likely to volunteer a comment? And they kept saying things like, they're nice, they care about me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but what do they do? And they're thinking, you're not getting it. And then I finally came across this study where sure enough, of like 15 different variables they tested for in a survey, the one that had the strongest correlation to students' willingness to raise their hands was their sense of how the professor felt about them. So that sense of connection or community between faculty members and individual students is critical, not just for wellness and mental health, but for almost any learning metric we can measure. I have a lot of homework to do on this, what I'm about to share. And I've shared on recent episodes too, this question, did your professor care about you? That is something that I have informally started to ask in my classes mm. because it isn't on our institution's formal survey. And I'm interested in that question somewhat, but I'm more interested in what is it that contributed to that sense of care? I do recognize because this particular way that I go about asking for this kind of input is not anonymous, so I do lose something in it. Uh, but 
so far I get I get high marks on showing that I care. What's been interesting is why why though what I'm, I'm and it, and it's it has moved around every semester. It's slight slightly more emphasis on things. It w- early on as you would expect during some of the peak times of COVID flexibility in deadlines. And then it switched to be about feedback and the kinds of feedback. But it's, it's something that you're when you were talking got me thinking about it's the feedback, not just fix this, improve this, but but literally and I know that that this has been written about it and I just have to dive more into the research. There is feedback that just lets you know that I see you. There is a human being on the other side of this thing that that is particularly intriguing to me as it relates to that sense of care. And it's a body of research I'd like to go and and learn and discover more about. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, you got me excited about thinking about about this potential for research and and how important that is. But, But I also have thought about, should this really be on our institution's formal survey? Years ago, we did a video interview with some students and a student who was a quadriplegic. We interviewed and we were asking about professors knowing their names. Mm. And he said, when they know my name, I feel like they see me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. All right, Bonnie, did anything come to mind (laughs) for you in terms of that sense of care and and some of the ways that we can, in more intentional and practical ways, provide those kinds of warm blankets? Rob just gave us, of course, the knowing people's names. What else comes to mind for you? I'll add something. So just last night, (laughs) my college son Zoomed with me because he had a math question. And he was talking about his professor and he said, mom, I think I'm going to make it in this class. I said, how come? How come you're going to make it? Because usually he's an engineering major and he's stressing out about the math and all of the physics. And it's just kind of, it does not come easy to him. He works really hard. And he said, because my teacher did two things. (laughs) He he takes the time to help us make sense of what he's teaching and he cares that we understand and he'll stop for questions. And then the second thing is, today I went to his office. He requires us to come to his office and meet with him. I got to meet with him one-on-one today, and he knows my name, and he asked me about what I'm doing, and just kind of shared a few things with me about that office visit. It wasn't long, but he said, that is the first teacher that has done that. He said, I loved it. And he's like, I'm I'm going to succeed. And even I think he's even more motivated now to work harder because he knows this teacher cares and believes in him. So I'm excited for him. (laughs) That's so helpful to think about because we don't always think about that because that that would be the kind of thing that would provide some resistance on the part of the student. But after the fact, they may see some of the benefits in new ways that they didn't know initially. Because this came up with a conversation with one of my colleagues, for anyone listening, I would just encourage you maybe not to think about if you were to take this idea that Bonnie just shared from her son's professor. Don't think about it necessarily as always having to add these things on top of our classes. You could have a week where that week is for the sole purpose of opening up not just your schedule, but also the students' schedules to be able to come and have those meetings with you. And one of my colleagues said, wait, 
I, I could do that. I would be allowed to do that. They felt like they, they had to keep that very high structure in their class schedule and didn't realize they would have the ability to make those kinds of adjustments to add these things. And I'm saying this as someone who also needs to remind myself of this. Like, if you're going to add some new stuff in, what's going to go? <laughs> yeah. And it's something you can do in one class when you can't afford to do it in every class. So you might choose a class where you've got the most first-year students. And incidentally, I think the sense of community, both vertically and horizontally, is probably most important for our students earliest in their careers to help them feel welcome. And uh, boy, I've had some wonderful conversations with those first-year students during those meetings. Just lately, I've stumbled upon a simple technique. I said, have you got your phone with you? Would you mind showing me a photo or two that will help me better understand you? Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating what they will show me. And sometimes it's just a a picture of their family and I can see they've got a special needs sibling. And that opens the door to a very revealing, touching conversation sometimes. It's really helped me feel a greater sense of connection and students show me things they've made, pets they love. And actually, as we assumed would be the case with our Pakistan class, the better I understand students' backstories, the more empathy, the more compassion I have for them, the more I treat them like real people and not just some object. Yeah. Could I emphasize the point? Actually, you both made really important points that I was, as I was listening. The first one is like, we don't want to overwhelm professors. I mean, we, professors have a lot on their plates too. Like they're building curriculum, they're getting ready for class. Some are researching and they have other responsibilities outside the classroom. So how do we do this naturally that we're not overwhelming? I love what Rob said about Show me a picture on your phone. It's an easy thing to do that you could build into five minutes before class. A lot of times I picture myself getting into class, running to get the overhead on, just getting on the computer, and I don't really see my students. (laughs) Like if with a little preparation, could we have a TA or get the computer going? And could we sit down for a couple minutes with a student, ask how they're doing, have them show the phone? picture or just, you know, ask them about an assignment and use that time in a different way. And then when your students come in, they start seeing that you're not up at the front kind of separated from them. You're that, you're with them and you're talking to them. And, you know, it depends on resources if we can get that TA or not. But one other way that I have used my TA, and I'm so grateful for a teaching assistant, not just to help me with evaluation and grading, but I like to use my TA on Mondays in one class. It's a five-day-a-week class on every Monday I have a lab. And during that lab, we have an activity that the TA helps with. And then I pull the students out one at a time for five minutes for their interviews. (laughs) And I have one-on-one interviews. So like you were saying, where we are, we couldn't possibly restructure the course to make things that are important to us more possible. So I appreciate that. So thanks. By the way, that advice stings because even though I've given it regularly about show up early enough to sit down next to one student, I way too often am either reading some news on the internet to relax for a bit or refining fonts, literally, on my slides. And Mm -hmm. our thought is that there's a lot more benefit to last semester, for example, I got there early, sat next to a student who had made many comments, pretty reserved. Within five minutes, I found out within the last two years, she'd had two siblings who'd attempted suicide and that she was struggling with some serious mental health challenges herself. Then we were able to schedule another time to come in and talk more and connect her with some resources. But it's amazing how we can connect even in a short period of time if we just intentionally sit down next to a student we think might benefit from a warm blanket. Just yesterday, I was talking to a colleague about Peter Newberry's technique that he uses, and and he 
has he is an astrologist. Oh my gosh, I keep, I keep astronomist. I know, isn't that so funny? I, so did, funny. I make the same mistake. It yes. sounds so so. Are you a, are you a Libra? <laughs> are you a, Taurus? <laughs> a Capricorn. <laughs> Every time it's like you could see my face that I knew I was going to do it while I like while I the words still came out of my mouth. Okay, <clears throat> I'll just leave this in. Please leave this in. <laughs> oh wow! This vulnerability, be... by the way, yeah. it's one of your great assets as a host. It's also yeah. one of the great things that professors can do. Mm-hmm. But students somehow feel a sense of connection when we're real and don't hide our flaws. Oh, it's so true! It's so true. I still, rem- I still remember sneezing in the middle of a pen cast, and back then it was so darn hard to ever go back and edit that I was just in my head thinking. There's no way I'm starting this thing again. And the student said I had the funniest, cutest sneeze they had ever heard. And I met their roommates and they would be, I heard your voice and you sound just like my, are you the one who sneezed that time? I was famous across campus for the sneeze. So Peter Newberry, who is a studies astronomy, there we go, would have up on the, on the projector a beautiful picture of whatever it is that people who study that discipline have up there. And he would have the words, what do you notice? What do you wonder? And even though it necessarily may not be that he got to sit down next to each student as they came in, he's still inviting them to contribute and start thinking and move toward that orientation of community. And then he would begin the class by asking them what they noticed and they wondered. I'm also thinking it could be interesting to maybe have a Google Jamboard up there or a mm. Padlet up there where people could begin to contribute to some discussions. I would, I would, just warn, though, I think back to a, a colleague who teaches at the University of California, Irvine. When I first met her, we were talking about using polling tools, and she was just early in her teaching and, and taught really large lectures. And I realized as someone who was trying to model this for her without her actually seeing me do it, she it had completely failed, but it was because she left it up there the whole time. And then people, I mean, they just, they have fun with it. So so definitely the size of your class would matter and the degree to which you wanted to just have no holds barred coming out on the screen. <laughs> you know, your context matters, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get to the recommendations segment, is there anything that you wanted to add in terms of mentorship, which of course is paralleling everything that you've talked about thus far, but might extend beyond a class, a specific class professor relationship and and can really move beyond those arbitrary limits? I'll throw out one thought that we discuss in the book. It's it's mentoring in the moment. And I've got the phrase from Peter Felton and Adam Lambert, who got it from Brad Johnson at the U.S. Naval Academy. And he talks about the opportunities to be a mentor of the moment. I, I've found this really compelling to look for an opportunity every day to just kind of be a mentor in passing. And and what they talked about is sometimes when we think mentor, we we think Dumbledore and Harry Potter, this lifelong relationship. But it can be as simple as one time, I, it was the second week of school, I walked past a student and he had a piece of paper in his hand looking around the building like students usually did the first day of class or the day before the first day of class. I was in a hurry to go somewhere, but I thought I should just stop and ask. And I asked, can I help you find anything? And he said, is this the John Taylor building? I hadn't heard it called the John Taylor building in a long time. I said, yeah, this is the Taylor building. And he 
I said, can I help you with anything else? And he said, where's the Ricks building? And I took him outside and pointed the way. And then I said, may I ask why you're asking this on the second day of class? Well, he's just gotten home two days before from serving a full-time mission for our church, but he was coming to school a, a, a week and a half late. And I, I said, so, you know, this is a little challenging. Can I share an idea with you? And he said, sure. I said, email your professors. Let them know you haven't just been slacking, that you just got here. Ask if you can meet with them individually and tell me you want to catch up and ask how. He was so grateful. It took me all of two minutes. I've never seen him again. I think that's mentoring in the moment, just to look for opportunities to help students out. And I hope he felt a little bit of a warm blanket as he came in, undoubtedly with some anxiety, getting a late, late start on his semester. This is such a great reminder for us all. I put so much pressure on myself that it does have to be this never-ending <laughs> relationship, but that we really can be that mentor. Something that I picked up on that story you just shared is... I've seen so many faculty, and myself very much included, where we get angry. Students might come, and they maybe have missed some days of class, and they might ask, did I miss anything? And I used to get so angry. And <laughs> how? And, and fortunately, I don't speak every word that <laughs> comes to mind. But in, internally, I was angry. And who are we kidding that that doesn't come through in the relationship in some way, whether or not we actually speak those words of anger or not? But did I miss anything? Yeah. Yeah, you really did. But today, I see it so differently because as you mm -hmm. shared, assuming the best, having the that the, the we don't put all this baggage onto that relationship. And now I just think they don't know, just like you talking about going to your new career opportunity, feeling like that kid. Well, guess what? <laughs> that feeling of, I'm not sure I belong here. I don't know the rules socially. I feel awkward. Now I'm able to have a much more gracious understanding of why someone may say that. But the way that you coach that individual just to be, you know, oh, I really want to get caught up. Would it? Would I have the opportunity? Helps set them in their language, taught, taught them in that moment for how to approach those professors. That's wonderful. Thank you. And I slip in one other related thought to this mentoring in the moment. And I apologize if I shared this last time, but we'd be talking about this. And then in a day where I'd be preparing for a presentation, I'd get an email from a student saying, I'm going to be gone on Monday. I've got to go home for a funeral. Is there any way I can make up class? And I would catch myself saying, yes, here's the relevant provision from the syllabus about how you can make up class. And then the thought would come to me, did you catch the word funeral, Rob? Mm. Anything more you can do with that? And I found that like another seven seconds, I can type in, I ask whose funeral it is, and they'll say, it's my grandmother. And I can type back and say, tell me a little bit about your grandmother. What did you love about her? What will you miss? Maybe 15 seconds extra total on my part to be a human, to transform that interaction from something that's transactional to connective and relationship building. All the way back to the warm blanket, taking those moments to pause. It doesn't mm. take that long. <laughs> and the payoff is enormous. Transformative, in fact. It's almost time for the recommendations segment, but before we get there, allow me to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. Text Expander is one of the first tools that I install on any new device. What it does is save me time such that I'm able to spend time on the more important things. So let me explain how this works. You type in characters that you easily designate, 
and they expand into either longer form text, such as for me, the podcast show notes, or they expand into things that are hard for me to remember, like my work phone number that I don't give out to people that often. And Text Expander, as I mentioned, it's really easy to set up these snippets and they show up wherever it is that you type, whether you're in a word processor, in an email, on the web, Text Expander is there ready to go into work for you. And what I like about it is how easy it is to search for these snippets, the little little pieces of text that you set up, if you don't remember what you set them up to be. And I actually learned this from someone at Text Expander recently on my keyboard. There's an easy keyboard shortcut on the Mac. It's Command forward slash. And of course, on a PC, Control forward slash. And it brings up a little search bar where I can type in the snippet and be ready to go and and implementing it wherever it is that my cursor is currently placed. And I thank Text Expander for your sponsorship and I and again I mentioned getting to talk with someone there recently because we've decided to go all in with Text Expander and start using their Teams feature. So uh, I've been using it as an individual for years now and we're early early in our experimentation with the Teams and it's really really fun. So you can still have all of your private individual text snippets, but you can easily then start to share them with different kinds of teams. They have a very unique model as far as you you buy these units, so you only get charged if you're actually, every team member is using Text Expander on a monthly basis, and it's just been a delight and a joy and really easy onboarding. So head over to textexpander.com slash podcast. Give it a try. There's a video there to learn a little bit more about Text Expander, and you can redeem a special offer for teaching in higher ed listeners 20% off your order and also take advantage of a free trial. Thanks once again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I have, I really want to just recommend that we just make our colleagues weep. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> As of this recording, I am getting ready, or I should, I've already began putting together a recap video of our academic year with some of the highlights. And I have two songs I want to recommend today. And the first one, I'm laughing, but I'm also crying. It's a beautiful song from the, the musical Wicked. And the song is called For Good. And one of my music colleagues is going on to a new opportunity after working with us for 22 years. And her fellow music colleague sang the lyrics from the song to her, because I knew you, because I knew you. I have been changed for good. And I will tell you, we also had another former colleague pass away this last year. And we are saying goodbye to some students who we have come to really love and care for. And that song, boy, I will tell you, you will make yourself. I'm working on the video and I keep going to play it back and I'm just sobbing and stopping. It's a beautiful song. It's been playing on the soundtrack in my head so much and a wonderful way to think about the transformations in our lives, whether it is a colleague who we have lost, whether it is a colleague who's moving on to other career things in their life. 
we really have been transformed and thinking about saying goodbye to students as well. And the second song I want to recommend, I, I, of course, this is not the entire highlight video is not weep worthy, but the first part is a little bit more upbeat. And as someone who thinks a lot about music, I was thinking about this song that many of us sang in our childhood called This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine. And I found a version of it, which I like a lot, but it was too jolting to go from the super, super upbeat one that I found into the four good from the wicked soundtrack and i did not i just typed in this little light of mine and i found that sam cook did a version of it and my goodness it it's a spectacular version of this little light of mine a little bit of a slower beat and a groove to it that's really really fun so if any of you sang that song growing up it's a really fun rendition of it sam cook those are my two recommendations for today i, I don't really want you to make your your fellow colleagues cry but i do want us to to not over compartmentalize and over professionalize the ways in which when you get close to other people and you are vulnerable, like we've been talking about, and you share parts of your life, of course, your heart is going to be ripped when these things happen. And we have to say various versions of goodbyes. So I like when we show up with that authenticity, vulnerability to really care. And that's really the only way that that song's ever going to make us cry as much as it's making <laughs> make my colleagues cry. So. I've just downloaded both of those. Thank you for yes. those recommendations. They're timely for me. You're always so good at, at writing to me over, over all these months that we've known each other. And so I, I suspect I'll hear from you when you, <laughs> when you have a chance to listen because they're really, really good. Yeah. I will also say too that the four good, those of you that might want to make a video about the minute mark of that song is when it starts to go in and, and really really get those lyrics in there. So, all right, Bonnie, I know you have something to recommend today as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I just read this again today when I was thinking about teamwork and collaboration. So Simon Sinek said, a team is not a group of people who work together. A team is a group of people who trust each other. So if you can find ways to help your students trust you and trust each other, it might mean less competition and more collaboration. Oh, thank you so much, Bonnie. That's beautiful. All right, Rob, what do you have to recommend for us today? Two quick recommendations. A book by Sean Acor called Big Potential, which is the kind of book I enjoy because he draws on and summarizes a bunch of research, including research he's done himself. He's not just a positive psychology guy, but calls himself kind of an expert in positive systems psychology. How do we create infrastructure that can help improve everyone's wellness? Uh, so I was intrigued by much of what he shared. And then my second one's just a practical tip I was thinking of this morning as I was running and listening to your podcast. It's to take a picture in nature every day. And it whether it's an ant on the sidewalk or an ant in your apartment or a flower that's just beginning to grow this morning, I got a very short video of a heron taking off from a pond. But the exercise gets you out into nature and gets you gets your head out of your book or whatever and uh, helps you notice the world, the beautiful world around you. Bonnie and Rob, thank you so much for coming on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And of course, thanks also to your co-author, Steve, for being here in spirit and for his ways in which he's been emblematic of the kinds of building of community that we've been talking about today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. 
podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Smith. If you've been listening for a while and have yet to sign up for the weekly updates, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. What that will result in is emails coming in once a week with the latest episodes, show notes, as well as some other resources that don't show up in the regular podcast episodes. And I would encourage you to head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And also thank you so much for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. And we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.